If you brought your Bible with you, would you hold it up in the air with me? People are reaching to grab them. Hold them up there in the air. All right, keep them there while we pray together. Here we go. Father in heaven, we believe what is written here. We believe that it is the story of redemption, the redemption of our souls by your blood. And we are so grateful for that. Those of us that have experienced that, we know the truth of your word. We've been touched by it, changed by it. Father, we have been redeemed by it as well. Thank you for that. For those that have not experienced that, that are still waiting, I'm praying that you will show them the power of the Bible today. But more than that, I'm, I'm praying, Father, that you will show them the power of the cross and the power of who you are. Would you show them what you can bring to their life? In Jesus' name, amen. I truly do believe in the truth of the Word of God. I hope you know that by this point. If you've worshipped with us very long, I really hope you know that I believe in the truth of the Word of God. Sometimes we read Scripture for the simple purpose of being convicted by it. Sometimes we read Scripture to be taught by it. Sometimes we have the wonderful privilege of being able to read Scripture just because it's fun to read. And there are passages in the Bible that are just fun to read. Let me show you one. This is found in Romans chapter 7. Paul is the author of it. We're going to read it together because I don't want to be the only one that has fun this morning. I want you to enjoy it too. So we're going to read this out loud together. This is one of those passages that when I read it, I always like to read it out loud. It helps me see the, the fun of it. It helps me pull that part out. And maybe you'll see exactly what I'm talking about as we do this. So we're going to read it together. But I do have to say, when we read this out loud together, you have to read it fast or you miss the fun of it. So see if you can keep up with me. Here we go. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now, isn't that fun? Let's do it one more time. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Now we're going to go on in Paul's passage. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And Paul goes on. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. I love that passage. I really do. If I were to title it in my Bible, I would call it the doo-doo passage. I think the Apostle Paul would have too. It is a blast to read fast. Because you get to grab hold of things like, for what I want to do, I do not do, but the things I do want to do, I do not do, on and on and on. Oh, it's just fun to read. Yet if you really read it critically, you can see that there's more of an emotion behind it than just fun. Let me show you that. Open your Bibles up with me. Romans chapter 7. We're going to look critically into this passage. And as we do, I want you to look for the emotion that the Apostle Paul has as he writes this. Romans chapter 7 verse 15. I do not understand what I do. Now, we don't have to go any further than that. We can stop right there in this passage. Listen to it again. I do not understand what I do. Have you ever felt that way? How many of you have? Just raise your hand. I do not understand what I do. 
And Paul goes on to say, the things I want to do, I can't pull off. And the things I do not want to do, I keep doing them over and over and over and over again. I do not understand what I do. I actually heard a story a few years ago that caused this passage to come alive for me. I want to share it with you this morning. A lady goes in to visit with a counselor. Like so many situations like this, she just starts out by telling the counselor, my marriage is in trouble. I don't think we're going to make it. The counselor began to run through in his mind the list of reasons that people make statements like that. And, and there really is typically a list of reasons that people make statements like that. My marriage is in trouble and I, I just don't think we're going to make it. So he starts running through, getting ready for each one of these different things. And then he says to this lady, well, tell me what's going on. And she starts out this way, and he was off balance from the beginning. She said, my husband is a kind, caring man, but he has run out of patience with me. The counselor didn't know what to do with that because most discussions like this begin with, my husband is an idiot and I don't know what to do with him, or my wife is treating me like a jerk and I don't know what to do with her. But this one started out this way, my husband is a kind, caring man, and he has run out of patience with me. The counselor wasn't sure what to do, so he did what anybody would. He said, well, tell me what's going on. She said, he has run out of patience with an obsessive, compulsive desire of mine. Now, all of a sudden, the counselor's curious. Everything's been peaked within him. He said, well, what, what are you doing? What's causing him to feel that way? She said, our house is overrun with puppies. The counselor said, how many puppies are we talking about? She said, I don't know. I've lost count. Somewhere over a hundred. A hundred puppies. <clears throat> that was the counselor's reaction, just like yours. Oh, my word, you have a hundred puppies in your house? Yeah, you have problems. She quickly set everything straight and said, now, I'm not talking about live puppies. I'm talking about little stuffed animals. And not just the, the animals themselves, the toys, but I have posters and pictures and towels and blankets that have puppies on them. There are puppies everywhere in our house. Every time I see one, I buy it. I can't stop buying them. Every time I come across one, I take it home with me. And my husband has said, that's enough. We used to be able to keep it confined within our bedroom, but it has progressed into the whole rest of the house. There are puppies everywhere. I can't stop. The counselor said, have you ever wondered why it is that you're doing this? The lady said, wondered. I sure have. I know why I'm doing it. He said, well, why is that? She said, when I was a little girl, I had a little stuffed puppy that went everywhere with me. We had tea parties together. I took that puppy to school in my backpack at night. The puppy slept on my pillow. The puppy literally did everything with me. And one time when I was five years old, my dad got really angry at me, and he grabbed hold of the puppy, and he started to shake the puppy at me. The well, puppy's name, stuffed puppy's name was Scruffy. She said he was shaking Scruffy at me and yelling at me, and then he put his hand on the head of Scruffy, and I was screaming at him, saying, please don't hurt him, please don't hurt him, and he yanked the head off of Scruffy. My heart was broken. And since then, every time I see a little stuffed dog, I buy it, and I think it's going to make me feel better. And the counselor said, does it? She said, no, it doesn't. It hasn't yet. So I keep buying them. Well, obviously, the counselor figured out what needed to happen and what they needed to explore and where the healing really needed to come, not just for their marriage, but for her life. And that's what they did. They explored that wound that had been there since she was five years old. 
Can you imagine? A wound since she was five years old, and every time she saw a little stuffed puppy, it made her feel like a five-year-old girl again, and she bought that puppy hoping that there would be some kind of healing in it, and there never was. That counselor's name is John Eldridge, and John would actually say this. Anytime we find ourselves doing something that we do not want to do, and we can't stop it, it should raise concerns in our life. He would go on to say, furthermore, anytime we find ourselves unable to do something that we do want to do and not able to do it, it should raise concerns in our life. That's what happened for the Apostle Paul. That's why he made a statement just like this. I do not understand what I do. In verse 21, he'll actually start to figure it out and lay it out for us. Listen to what he says. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is what Paul says. For the longest time I didn't understand why I do what I do. but I kind of have a rope around it now. It's because there is a sin nature inside of me. And a lot of my actions are being fueled by that nature, by the sin that is within me. And I'm struggling against it, I'm fighting against it, yet I still have the same actions over and over and over again, and I'm trying to stop. When he really boiled it down and he said, this is why it's going on, he he has a good understanding, a good handle on it. But that's not the only reason that we do the things that we do not want to do. And some of you know what it's like, like the Apostle Paul to say, I do not understand why I do what I do. Some of it is not sin-based. Dr. Kevin Lehman would teach that sometimes the things that you do are based solely on your birth order. He's been studying this for 40 years. I am fascinated, literally fascinated by some of his teachings on birth order. It is, it's fun to kind of figure it out, to study it, and apply it to different people's lives. And I've done this a number of times, but I was back exploring it this past week. I want you to imagine that you're at work, and all of a sudden, you are surrounded by people that just don't seem to want to do their job. So every day, you go in and you do your job, and you do their job, never letting them fail, never letting those tasks go undone. And at night you get home and you think to yourself, well, I'm not going to do that again. If they don't get their work done, that's their fault. That's not my fault. I am not doing it anymore. And the next morning you get up and you say, it isn't going to be that way. Today I'm just going to do my job and that's it. But at the end of the day, you realize you've done the work of three people. And you ask yourself, why am I doing this? I don't understand why I keep doing it. Dr. Kevin Lehman would teach this. More than likely, it's because you are a firstborn child. And you have held the responsibility for other people for years and years and years and years. And you cannot let them fall. You cannot let them slip. So you just keep cleaning up everybody else's messes because it's what you've always done. It's somewhat hardwired in you. Some of you are smiling at me right now like, oh, that's why I do what I do not want to do. Some of the rest of you are looking at me like, why would anybody do that? I can't even begin to imagine why they would do somebody else's work. Let them be responsible for their own stuff. Just take care of yours. You do what you want to do, and then go out and have a great time. Dr. Lehman would teach that more than likely you are the baby of the family. You don't analyze what other people are doing. You only look at yourself and say, how can I have the most fun possible? That's the baby of the family. Some of the rest of you, though, you're thinking, Are you telling me that those people go to work and they're paid for a a full day's work and they don't do their job and somebody else does it? That is totally unfair. 
And there are other people that are going to work and they're not really pulling off their part of it because they're just thinking about where the next party is going to come from. Why would they do that? That is unfair. Do you know what your birth order is according to Dr. Lehman? You're the middle child. Nothing is ever fair. How many middle children do we have in here? You know what we're talking about. That's exactly why Dr. Lehman would say some of us do what we do. There's also reasons like this. It's just part of your wiring. That's how you're made up. And you have to struggle against it. If you recognize it, if it causes concern in your life, if you recognize that it's part of your wiring, you can change it. You can shift the whole thing over. But maybe a lot of people, including the Apostle Paul, need to listen to the wisdom of Isaiah if they really want to figure out why they're doing the things they are. Go with me back to that book. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Isaiah would say, if you really want to know why it is that from time to time you're doing things that you do not want to do, if you don't understand it and you want to understand it, maybe this is it. Because you have a divided heart. Yet the Spirit of the Lord had come upon him to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that broken hearts might be bound up Before that can happen, we have to recognize that many of us, many of us have a divided heart. Let me show you what it might look like. Typically, when we think of our heart, we would think of something that looks like this. My wife drew this, don't make fun of it. So, if you've been to a cardiologist, you might be thinking, that's not what I think of when I think of my heart. Just play along. This is your heart. It's whole and it's complete, and there are no problems within it. But the truth of the matter is, almost every one of us has a divided heart. If not in many pieces, in at least two parts. That is evidenced when we make statements like this. Part of me wants to, but part of me doesn't. Anybody ever said that? Part of me wants to, but part of me doesn't. Well, there's a part of you, and this may very well be the spiritual part of your heart that says, I want to do what is pleasing to God. I want to do what the Lord has called me to do. But on the other side, the worldly side, the fleshly side, there's part of you that doesn't want to do it. Because you don't want to give it up. You don't want to stop doing what you're doing. You have a divided heart. More often than not, this is what our hearts look like. They're divided in all kinds of different pieces. There's a part of us that says, part of me wants to, but a whole lot of me doesn't. Because of the divisions within my heart. So Isaiah says, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he came to bind up our broken hearts and make them whole. When Jesus was questioned on the greatest commandment, this is what he said. The greatest commandment in all the world is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. That requires a bound up heart, no longer divided. And Isaiah said Jesus came for that very reason. So when you find yourself like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 saying, I don't understand why I do what I do, it's probably because you have a divided heart. If you want to change it, 
then it requires the healing of Jesus Christ. And when that's applied, amazing things happen. Truly amazing. David understood that. Part of what David understood was that when God heals a heart, it is more miraculous than anything a physician could ever do. When God heals a heart, it is really, truly healed. At one of the worst times in David's life, he was separated from his family. He was separated from his friends. He was homeless, truly homeless, running from one place to the next, hoping to find a rock that he could lay down under every night and just get a little bit of rest, a little bit of sleep. He had the the worst enemy he could possibly have, the most powerful man in the region, chasing him for the sole purpose of wanting to kill him. He was in the region of En Gedi, hiding in the caves in a desert, just trying to stay alive. That was it. When he was in that situation, praying that God would sustain him, praying that God would surround him again with people that loved him. By the way, he had a group of men that were running with him at the time. Many of them had been cast out of other places. They were not the most trustworthy individuals, although there were some among him that he would refer to as his mighty men. The rest of them were just scoundrels, scoundrels. When all of that was happening, David wrote one of the most popular passages in all of the Bible, the 23rd Psalm. Why don't you open your Bibles and go there with me? A lot of you are familiar with these words. Maybe you were taught them by your grandmother when you were growing up. Maybe she had them on a plaque hanging on the wall in her house. Maybe you heard them in Sunday school. Maybe you've been to a number of funerals and you've heard the 23rd Psalm over and over and over again. But what you have to know is this. Psalm 23 is not just a funeral psalm. It is not just a passage that should be used in the moments of death. It is a psalm that actually has a lot of other application. Listen to what David writes. Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Now, do you remember where David's at when he's writing this? He's on the run for his life out in the middle of the desert. He doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. He doesn't know how he's going to be safe. Saul is right on his heels, chasing him down for the sole purpose of killing him. And that's what David says. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. This is my favorite part. Listen to this right here. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's, that's by the way, the, the part of this passage that has made it a funeral passage. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's actually not the literal translation. The literal translation of it is, even though I walk through the darkest times of my life. Even though I walk through the darkest times of my life, I will fear no evil because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I got this letter this past week. It was placed in the offering plate by somebody. I don't know who. They did not sign it. It's been laying on my desk. I saw it Monday morning for the first time, and it it just pierced through to my heart. Listen to this. Please pray for the deep, dark depression that comes upon many of us this time of year. Let us learn to see the beauty among the darkness, the joy of life all around us, and gratitude for a Savior that loves us in spite of ourselves. That's somebody that knows what David's talking about. They're praying the 23rd Psalm. Lord, I'm in the darkest time of my life, and I need you. I need to feel protected by you. 
I need you to drive out the fear. I need you to put your rod and your staff right in front of me. That's what David was saying. But he had experienced it, and God had already restored his soul. Listen to this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Right after that account, it is tested in David's life. David is able to say that my soul has been restored by God. My heart has been bound up. It has been healed. I have experienced all of that. And when I experienced this heart healing, it went all the way through to my soul. My soul has been restored by God. I want to show you what happens right after this account. For that, we're going to have to go to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 26 starting in verse 1. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakalah facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the desert when he saw that Saul had followed him there. He sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army and camped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who will go down into camp with me to Saul? I will go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either this time will, his time will come and he will die or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? And from there on, this is what happens. Saul hears David calling out from the other side of the ravine, the other side of the river. And he says, Is that you, David, my son? And David said, Yes, it is. And then he says, Look uh, look by your pillow. I have your sword. I have your water jug. Who could do that to you? And all of the sudden, Saul understands that the Lord is on David's side. And he says, David, you come back in. I won't ever try to harm you again. Well, David knows better than that. He says to him, you are the Lord's anointed and it is not my place. Abishai doesn't understand why that happened. They had the opportunity to put this whole thing to rest. All it would have taken was one thrust of the sword. He would have stuck him to the ground and the whole thing was over. And David said, no You will not, because God's hand rests on him. You know how David could say that? Remember, Saul's chasing him, trying to kill him. The only way he could say that is through a restored soul. His heart had been bound up by God. Now, let me show you something really interesting in that passage. Take a close look at verse 12. Real close look, verse 12. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. 
they were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. God had made it possible for him to run that sword through Saul. God had made it possible for him to have that victory and walk out of there. But God had convicted his heart so that David knew what was right. So it might ask this question or beg this question. Why would God do that? If it wasn't to run a spear through the heart of Saul, what was the purpose of making them all go to sleep so that David could get into the camp and get right next to Saul? Well, the answer is simple. It had nothing to do with the heart of Saul. It had everything. It had everything to do with the heart of David. God wanted to see what he was going to do. His heart had been bound up. It had been healed. His soul had been restored. And he trusted God's staff and God's rod. And that's a good place to be. It really is. That's where his hope was. That's where his trust was. So God puts this whole thing in place to take a look at the heart of David. And even more than that, that David would take a look at his own heart. One of the things that David knew was this. When God heals a broken heart, when God binds together a divided heart, when God heals you completely and restores your soul, you are completely healed. David knew it. He was completely healed. The baggage was gone. He no longer wanted to take off Saul's head. That was up to God. He no longer wanted to run the spear through him. That was up to God. Because he had been completely healed and his soul had been restored, David began to live a life of celebration. Do you realize that the 23rd Psalm is not a funeral dirge? It is a psalm of celebration. As much as we use it in dark times and tough times, it is a psalm, a song, if you will, of celebration. I want to show you just a portion of that again. Go back to Psalm 23 with me. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. There's the celebration of it. Even though I walk through the darkest times of my life, I will fear no evil because God has already prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Imagine what that means. David, you and God are going to sit down and have a meal together. God has prepared a feast, a celebration in the presence of your enemies. They are surrounding you. They are all around you. They are pressing down on you. Have a seat and let's eat together. We're going to have a feast with one another. And God set the table. That's a celebration. If you have ever been invited to that type of meal by God, you know what it's like. So if we want to get ourselves into a place where we can say that my heart has been healed, it has been bound up, and my soul has been restored by God, then how do I do it? I want to celebrate like David did, and I want to be able to say things like he did. How do I do it? Well, the first thing that you have to do is figure out for yourself, like the Apostle Paul had to, where's it coming from? Why are you doing what you're doing? The answer is actually found again in the 23rd Psalm. Look at this. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I walk through the darkest times of my life, I will fear no evil. The majority of our actions that we do not want to do are based on fear. They really are. The fear of failure, the fear of inadequacy, the fear of success, the fear of relationships, 
the fear of intimacy, the fear of you can plug in anything you want, the fear of being hurt again, the fear of being loved too much and hurting someone else. The list just goes on and 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 on. The majority of our struggles are fear-based. And so David says, I will fear no evil. It has no hold on me because God's rod and God's staff surround me. He's on my side. He's already prepared the table in the presence of my enemies. And when that happens, there is no fear. None whatsoever. There's healing. There's binding. There's restoration. There's redemption. Isn't that beautiful? It really is. So you might ask, how how do I find that? Because I don't want fear. I don't want that to be the driving force behind my actions. And if I can understand that that's what it is, how do I deal with it? Well, the Bible will actually tell us. Let me take you to the book of 1 John. Right towards the end of the Bible, if you go to Revelation and turn left four books, you'll run into Revelation, or not Revelation, you'll run into 1 John. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. John writes these words, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. By the way, most scholars would tell you that John wrote this book, 1 John, right before he went to the island of Patmos, before he was exiled to prison. And he finds himself in a position to be able to say, I can stand before God with confidence. I can face judgment with confidence. That's different than the Apostle Paul saying, I do not know why I do what I do. I don't understand it. John, at this point in his life, was able to answer it. I can stand boldly before the Lord with confidence because of Jesus Christ, because I've been healed by him. There is no fear in love, verse 18, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Here's what John is saying. Perfect love, which is Jesus Christ, drives out fear. So all those fears that that fuel people to do the things that they do not want to do and and makes them unable to do the things that they do want to do, all of that being fear-based, if you follow David's line of thinking in Psalm 23, John says, relationship with Jesus Christ takes care of it. It drives that fear out. Have you ever wondered why it is that people struggle so much with stuff? Oftentimes, it is simply because of the fear of change, the fear of what surrender might cost me. Think about this for just a second. Why does the alcoholic continue to go back to the bar over and over and over again when they know that it is so destructive for them? Because they're afraid. They're afraid to stop. They're afraid of change. 
Why do a husband and wife continue to be at war with one another instead of accepting peace through Jesus Christ with one another? Oftentimes it's because of a fear of change. They found a certain level of comfort. That's what that video was about. A certain level of comfort in the battle. And if they stop, then what's going to happen? They're afraid. They don't know what to do about it. Why do churches continue to hemorrhage very slowly until they just die and close their doors rather than making the changes that they know they need to make? The answer is simple, because they're afraid. They're afraid of change. Why do we continue to do the same things over and over and over again? Oftentimes, because we are afraid of what life would look like without it. But this is what John says. It will look like perfect love, and you will be healed and restored and redeemed. And isn't that good news? Perfect love, which is Jesus Christ, drives out fear and makes you a new person. Pretty exciting. Biblical test for you. Anybody know who the first New Testament missionary was? The first New Testament missionary. Now, I want to keep everybody honest on this, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person sitting to your right or your left and just take your best guess. Who was the first New Testament missionary? Go ahead and just take a guess. Some of you are trying to cheat because you don't have anybody sitting next to you. Chris, this is Connie. Connie, this is Chris. Chris, tell Connie what you're thinking. (laughs) Chris wasn't cheating. He just said, I have no idea. So that's okay. Okay, now, let's find out here. And you have people sitting next to you to keep you honest. How many of you said the Apostle Paul was the first New Testament missionary? That is a great thought, but you're wrong. How many of you said it was Peter? Just raise your hand. You thought it was Peter. Oh, raise him a little higher than that. Be bold. Okay, that's a good guess, but you're wrong. How many of you thought it was James or John? Throw your hands up. A few of you. Again, wonderful guess, but not quite right. How many of you said Stephen? All right, wonderful answer. Still wrong. How many of you said Philip? Which, by the way, is a great name, great biblical name. Okay, some of you were bold in saying it was Philip. You're wrong. The first New Testament missionary was a chained-up lunatic. That's who it was, a chained-up lunatic. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned and they became the first case of swine flu. That's an old joke, but I can never resist it. I can never resist it. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who was possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. 
Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Why? They had just heard. They had just heard what he had done. He had just healed this man, cast those demons out. They went into the pigs and and ran into the sea, and, and they were drowned there. And now they see the miracle, but they can't accept the miracle, so they want Jesus gone. Why? They were afraid. That's all it was. They were afraid. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell him the Decapolis, which, by the way, the Decapolis is ten cities. He went and began to tell him the ten cities how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. He was the first commissioned missionary because he'd been healed. His broken heart had been bound up. His soul had been restored. He was a new person in Jesus Christ, and it began with him screaming, the demon screaming from within him, but him screaming, what do you want with us, son of the most high God? And Jesus said, I want to heal you. I want to restore you. I want to get you to a place where there is no fear in you because God has prepared for you a table in the presence of your enemies. That's restoration. That's beautiful restoration. And then Jesus said, you go tell other people what I have done for you. That is what Celebrate Recovery really is. It is a place where people come to tell about what Jesus has done for them. Every Thursday night at 6 o'clock, people are telling what Jesus has done for them. If you have never experienced it, we invite you to give it a shot. There is a new group kicking off this week, a new yearly session of it starting this Thursday night. You're invited. Dinner's at 5 o'clock. The main session starts at 6. Come check it out and listen as people tell what Jesus has done for them. If you are one of those people that is still shouting out, what do you want with me, son of the most high God, then know this. What he wants is to cast fear out of you, to drive it away, that your soul might be restored. Better than any open heart surgery, he wants to restore your soul if you will allow him to do that. Why don't you stand and pray with us? Father in heaven, that type of restoration and redemption is so important, so necessary for every one of us. It's easy to say that it's what other people need, but the truth is it's what we all need. And so, Father, we make ourselves available to you to do that. Would you change our hearts? Would you surround us with your rod and your staff and lead us beside quiet waters? But more than any of that, would you restore our souls through your Son? Help us drop the bags of the past to get away from them. No longer let them define us and help us move into you. What a great relationship. Thank you for doing what was necessary. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for redeeming us by your blood and showing it to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.